0: We're going to talk about some terrible, messed up things in this episode, so don't listen with your kids. We earned
1: our E-rating, or E-square. E don't we have that next to our episodes?
0: Oh, yeah. This is an explicit podcast in every episode, but in this episode especially. We
1: earn our explicit rating this episode, so. Oh, yes. Know
0: that before you listen any further. Pink Flamingos is a film that is, uh... Difficult to describe with mere words. So we're going to reenact it. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur, local filmmaker here in Utah, and I am slowly making my way through the pile of books on my bedside table, but they just keep showing up.
1: And I am Andrew, professional film historian, and
0: I am God. Kill everyone. (laughs) And this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I haven't seen. But I most likely have. From every year. This week we're in 1972, taking a look at Pink Flamingos, directed by John Waters and starring Divine. Divine. Andrew, what is that? What is that I hear on your end of the conversation? You hear something? I think I hear a clickety-clack. Oh,
1: oh. um. So my MacBook is acting up. So you might be hearing a little bit of this and a little <laughs> bit of this during today's episode. And that's, you know... That's just the difference in the PC that I record on versus the MacBook, which has a very quiet keyboard on it. You know, just roll with it. I think it makes me sound more professional. I think it makes me sound, you know, like I'm an accountant or something, like I'm like I'm running the books while
0: we're doing the episode. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online in the link on our show notes. This was available, I think, on the Criterion channel for a was. second, but mm-hmm. it is no longer and I had to borrow your DVD Andrew.
1: Pass around party bottom. I mean I mean DVD. Mm,
0: mm. Mm, mm. Um what should we talk about? What's going on in 1972? Give our audience a little context for the year. Yeah, Arthur, give me a little history lesson. Well, this year 1972, you have a lot of rather bad things going on. Uh the Munich Olympic terrorist attacks when 11 Israeli athletes are killed by Arab gunmen. There are conflicts between the British government and the IRA with bombings and Bloody Sunday. 72 is an election year in the U.S., never fun, and it is the beginning of the Watergate scandal, which will end the Nixon presidency in two years. Little good news, I guess, the last U.S. ground troops are withdrawn from Vietnam. And in technology, Atari releases Pong, and the first scientific handheld calculators are introduced tell me a little bit about the films coming out this year you have a couple of recommendations
1: now y'all know i got my five recommendations lined up for you we've got some familiar faces to the pod on uh on our recommendations today first up we have federico fellini's roma have you ever seen this I haven't. No, 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 no. Movie is insane. This movie is like almost a parody of a Fellini film made by Fellini himself. Even the title, just being Rome, is supposed to be sort of a silly jab at his films being these grandiose statements on Italy. It's a series of vignettes, and they're all stunning to watch, but also are nonsensical and kind of silly in nature. But there's a beautiful sense of artistry throughout the whole thing. And in this incredible clash of artistry and subversion, there is a catwalk runway sequence in which nuns... And popes are strutting the runway in the newest habits and newest, like, pope outfits. And it's a fashion show of showing what these people in the religious world will be wearing (laughs) now that the new season has come. It's hysterical. (laughs) It's a really great movie. Lots of uh, incredible images. There's this sequence where these archaeologists find all of these statues that have been buried under Rome for centuries. And as soon as they discover them, the oxygen rushing in from them coming into the room and then breaking through the wall makes everything decay in front of them. And it's <laughs> incredible to watch. So it's a really great movie. Um Yeah. Not considered one of his classics, but it is one of my personal favorites of Fellini's. So next up we have Pasolini's adaptation of the Canterbury Tales, which is a gnarly movie It's really funny because it is people on the pilgrimage telling stories and then it cuts to those stories and the way they are depicted is so fascinating and interesting to watch. But it also will just occasionally cut to Geoffrey Chaucer writing the book with a quill and he just will like chuckle and be super proud of himself for what he just wrote and then it'll go back into the book. It's a really funny tongue-in-cheek film that also has really striking imagery, including a live rendition of a Hieronymus Bosch painting in the final scene which is one of the most shocking disgusting incredible jaw-dropping sequences it's so amazing to watch you forget that you're watching actual human beings because it doesn't feel like people are capable of doing the things that are happening on screen it's something that you'll never forget and it's a really fascinating film go check that one out Next up, uh, another familiar face to the podcast, we have Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Now, I think I have recommended this film in the past. It's a very uncomfortable film about four sisters living in a house that is gorgeously colored red and one of the sisters is stricken with disease and the majority of the sound throughout the film is her screaming in agony i know that's a bit of a tough sell. But this is a really fantastic film about family, about the relationships between sisters, about people being pushed to their emotional breaking points. It's a very relatable film. It's gorgeous to watch. Liv Ullman gives another stunning performance in a Bergman film. Great stuff. And then I got two more. I got two whole more. I got two more whole movies uh louis buniel who i don't think i've really given many recommendations but louis buniel in general is just a fantastic filmmaker and if you've never seen any louis buniel i really don't think there's a better place to start than the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie uh similarly to roma also more of a series of vignettes and quick jokes than it is an actual narrative but it is about These bourgeois people coming together and having dinner and discussing how much better they are than the lower class. And then as the film goes on, the ridiculousness surrounding them, surrounding their stature, surrounding how they act towards each other grows and grows and grows. And the performative nature of the class system is put on full display. And it's a really great sort of takedown. Of the bourgeoisie from the perspective of a director who had no time for fools and had no time for the rich. So discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Really great movie. Hmm. And my final recommendation is my favorite film of this year, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, a film directed by Reinhard Vanner Fassbender. Now, are you aware of The Clouds of Phil's Maria? No. Oh, it was this famous French film that came out a few years ago with Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. It was it it made money. The reason why I bring up that film is there's a play within that film that the characters are dueling over and the play within Clouds of Sils Maria is based off of the film, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. So if you've seen clouds of Sils Maria, you owe it to yourself to see the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. This is a fantastic film. The entire movie takes place in one apartment. It's about a woman, Petra von Kant who manipulates everybody around her and refuses to be satisfied with her current living condition and also refuses to listen to anybody who tries to get her to leave or tries to give her any sort of advice the cast is small but impeccable and it also is the reason I fell in love with the song Smoke Gets in Your Eyes because it plays at the beginning of the film in a gorgeous sequence and it's just a fantastic movie. I don't, I almost don't want to give up too much away with Bitter Tears of Petra von Camp but it's one of my few fully five-star reviewed movies on Letterboxd so I'm hoping that recommendation speaks for itself. Boom.
0: Damn, I haven't heard of any of them. I haven't seen any of them. Oh, I've heard of Roma. I take that back. But yeah, those
1: all sound good. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I think The Godfather came out this year. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: you think The Godfather came out this year? The Godfather came out this year. That's a great It's a great movie. Number one at the box office. Nothing else comes close this year to The Godfather. It sweeps the Academy Awards and everything. The Godfather is the big film this year. But you also have Cabaret. Uh, you have Deep Throat. One of my favorite films this year is *Silent Running*, a science fiction environmentalist film. It's directed by Douglas Trumbull, the man who did the special effects for 2001. So we can tie that back to into our episode from
1: 1968. Hmm. That's been on my watch list for a long time. I when I first oh, saw love
0: to watch it with you,
1: I would love that. Yeah, when I first saw *Fantastic Planet*, I was told that you also had to watch. Soylent Green and Silent Running, that it was this sort of weird 70s offbeat sci-fi trilogy. <laughs> and so I, that's the yeah. only one of those three I haven't seen.
0: Uh, and then you also have Solaris from Tarkovsky.
1: Oh, I wanted to bring it up, but I felt like it was weirdly like I because people know about Tarkovsky and Solaris.
0: Yeah. But I adore that movie. And then I also do want to mention the two Bruce Lee films that come out this year, Fist of Fury and. The Way of the Dragon, where he fights Chuck Norris. Oh, I knew that one sounded familiar. The short career of Bruce Lee. uh, Short but sweet. Great films. Mm. Why don't we get to our film?
1: Yeah. This week we watched Pink Flamingos, directed by John Waters. (laughs) (laughs) I watched this with my roommates. I watched this alone. Oh. I know that we always do these separately and it does make sense but this is one case where I almost feel like we should have just done this together because yeah. I did want to, I wanted to I've seen this film multiple times and I
0: I wanted to see your face. Listen, I can tell part of the reason to watch this film is to watch the people who watch it with you. <laughs> you got the plot this week Arthur?
1: I think I got this.
0: All "Quote right. unquote plot." Yeah. Pink Flamingos follows divine a fictional version of the drag queen by the same name uh divine in the film is a dangerous criminal who is living in hiding with her family and it is her family right not his family
1: i when it comes to pronouns and divine he liked to be called both pronouns she liked to be called both pronouns whatever floats your boat man
0: I think they refer to Divine as she within the film. Anyways, and she is proud to be labeled by the press as the filthiest person alive. This upsets Divine's jealous rivals, Connie and Raymond Marbles, who want to usurp the title. The Marbles run a black market baby ring, kidnapping women and impregnating them to sell babies to lesbian couples. This is the plot. And although that is filthy, Andrew, the marbles pale when they see what Divine is up to, which includes a birthday party where, amongst other things, the cops are called, the cops are ambushed, hacked to pieces, and eaten (laughs) by Divine and her friends and family. So it's a lot of this kind of stuff. The film follows the two sides as their war of filth escalates, and it culminates when Divine... Kidnaps the marbles, holds a kangaroo court in front of the local press, and shoots the marbles dead after saying a few words. You're not going to talk about the next part? Oh, well, they go into the city and she eats dog poop what would you like to discuss
1: that that i i want to make sure that's a part of the that is the plot the plot is that you watch a bunch of random stuff and then at the end divine eats dog poop fresh yeah you see it happen (laughs) um i do think it's important to note that this is i think the fourth film we had for this year and i'm still not entirely sure how i was able to swindle this in here especially since even as recently as last week's recording arthur was trying to replace it with other things but i'm really happy that i got <laughs> this in here because i do want this episode to exist uh but i also i i, I need to know i need to know how, how you feel about this movie i won't take anything personally
0: uh anything i say about this film that is true to myself and uh expresses the horror that i felt i don't know uh is probably exactly what john waters wants you know whatever terrible things i can say about it would just delight the filmmakers and i i saw that you sent me roger ebert's review from the film's re-release in 1997 Mm -hmm. and he ends that review saying note i am not giving a star rating to pink flamingos because stars simply seem not to apply it should be considered not as a film but as a fact or perhaps as an object i don't know that feels right Hmm. like i didn't enjoy watching this i think if i had watched it with other people i would have had a lot more fun yeah we probably should have made that work you know when i picked it up from tara she said it might not be as bad as you think And I think that statement kind of <laughs> lulled me in, and it was way worse than I thought. Really? Oh, yeah. Especially after she said that. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> she lured you in. No. Yeah, are some pretty horrendous things that happen, but the film is trying to shock you. It, it succeeds in exactly what it's trying to do, and... It's also kind of funny, okay. you know? I was about to say, did, did you find any of it funny? That's really what I care about. When the tabloids ask Divine, what are your political views? And she says, kill everyone now. Legalize murder in the first degree. <laughs> Cannibalize each other. <laughs> I did laugh at that. That was funny.
1: I love it right before that when they're, they've been asking the other... To the two kids, these off questions,
0: Divine just interrupts and says, ask me more questions. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of my favorite parts. It's so funny. funny. (laughs) Listen, there's a lot of charismatic people behind this film, Divine especially. Just this incredible screen presence and you enjoy watching what she's doing. And then on your DVD, the film ends with sort of a interview thing with John Waters. Also really charismatic. and. I liked listening to him kind of laugh at what he did. Uh, But yeah, the actual experience of watching Pink Flamingos was not at all enjoyable. Uh, I laughed
1: throughout the whole thing. No, I I said (laughs) at the very beginning, I'm not going to take any of it personally. You know, when I was, oh man, I guess I was in, I guess I was in the seventh grade. I was so young. I came across Hairspray the musical and thought it was honestly one of the best musicals I'd ever heard. And became completely obsessed with it. And then I found out that it was based off of an old movie. And so I watched that. But even watching that film, which is so, so much tamer than Pink Flamingos. Even that movie, just watching it, I thought, oh, I've never seen anything that looks or sounds like this before. And the whole movie just sort of threw me off especially when John Waters himself plays this character who starts torturing this girl with an electrical stick because her mother wants her to stop dating this black man. And that scene especially made me feel really weird and sort of queasy. So I started doing more research on John Waters and started getting more and more into him.
0: And John Waters directed Hairspray. I don't think you ever mentioned that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. The original Hairspray was directed by John Waters. So then I found out about Pink Flamingos and I was in the 10th grade and found that movie through, I would say, illegal ways. But I also feel like John Waters is the last person to care if someone downloads his movies. So I I watched this film through those sorts of routes and had no idea what on earth I was watching. I was honestly super upset and offended by the women in the basement especially the baby ring
0: the black market baby ring
1: the black market baby ring was a lot for 10th grade andrew that that was way worse than the dog poop or the chicken or anything that was i don't know just that as a concept was something that hadn't really entered my little brain yet so that was the worst part and then when she tied those two up to a tree and started yelling at these reporters and then just shot them, I found myself overcome with laughter because I was like, yeah, good. She's disgusting. But in like a fun way, those guys are doing horrible things to people. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, (sighs) murdering the cops and eating them. Yeah, as a concept, it's like, oh, that's the worst thing that actually happens to another human being. But it's all just Silly, it never looks real. you know those women were actually like naked and covered in dirt in a basement, and uh looked like they were having a bad time, so I think that that was the difference in that for me, but then I revisited this film, I guess I was in college and thought it was just the funniest thing from beginning to end. I thought the whole thing was hysterical, especially Edie, who is the egg lady. She's definitely
0: my favorite character <laughs> and uh, just I don't She's just in a crib the entire movie eating eggs. There's <laughs> the egg man who delivers eggs to their trailer and she loves eggs so much that she marries him.
1: Watching her monologue endlessly about eggs and then seeing her, you know, eat all the scrambled eggs and all the fried eggs. And then, of course, in the deleted scenes afterwards, which to me as a... Member of an audience, I think they should have all been kept in.
0: <laughs> yeah, why not? Just put them back. Yeah,
1: but I really—the one that I missed the most that I wish really was actually in the movie—is when the marbles come over and just crack eggs all over Edie, <laughs> and she's just sitting there like, "No, no, no!" As they're just cracking eggs all over. <laughs>
0: I am relieved to hear that you were also horrified the first time you watched it. I mean, there's some pretty horrifying things in here played for laughs. Yeah. There's no getting around that. But it's all so silly. Like you said, I don't know. Yeah.
1: I think this film is meant to be watched once for pure shock. And, you know, it, it, that's part of it. And so I ki- I couldn't tell you the things that happened in this movie because that's the whole point of the movie. I know we're kind of ruining this with the podcast itself, but
0: I don't know. So if you want to watch Pink Flamingos before we get into it, go watch Pink Flamingos. And although uh, some of our films are hard sells, right? Sometimes we watch some depressing films and very grim films, sometimes avant-garde or slow films. I don't know. There's like a morbid curiosity with this one, right? Right. I mean, I'd heard of Pink Flamingos before watching this. And yeah, that morbid curiosity, that uh, that sense of like, what is, what is going on in this movie I've heard so much about? It's the same sort of thing that I remember from middle school when people were watching just insane internet videos. There were some crazy things being distributed in quite easily found. It reminds me of that.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it has that sort of vibe. You know, this was the two girls, one cup of 1972.
0: And it's very hard to turn away. You want to seek it out. Yep. That being said, I have never actually seen two girls, one cup. I'm Oh, wow. I'm not recommending it. I might be ready now that I've seen pink flamingos, but there's probably more going on in pink flamingos than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No comment. No further comment on, on that. This review you found is so good. Oh, this is Vincent Canby with the New York Times, and his review is barely a review. That's what makes it so good. Again, it's hard to really rate this film or recommend it. But this is uh, more like a dramatized conversation he apparently had with someone where they're just mulling over the state of everything, Mm. politics, entertainment. They say, how could you work in the newspaper industry when you're having to review Deep Throat, this pornographic film? What, what, what have we become? Talking about Watergate. Watergate, how the counterculture isn't going to be the force that takes down Nixon. It's just going to be Nixon being silly and getting into trouble. And that's kind of sad to them. So it's just a lot of uh, self-reflection on the state of things in 1972. This review is actually from 73, but
1: it's close enough. Yeah. I honestly think it's the perfect review for Pink Flamingos. because, it, And it's so <laughs> yeah. funny. We've gone back and forth. Vincent can be a man of extremes within this podcast. You know, we go from thinking he's incredible for defending Jacques Tati for, to thinking he's just horrible. What did we hate his review for so much? It was like the next one. Was it Once Upon a Time in the West?
0: It might have been. We
1: don't remember. We don't remember our our listeners who like you know have had the chance to just be on a road trip and listen to that episode you know less than two hours ago are like well, it was this episode how could you forget um, for <laughs> us that was you know like a year ago
0: <laughs> yeah I love this review
1: yeah but this one's great this is right on the nose <laughs> he understands it again and it's reading it I was I was filled with such delight this is just so good. <laughs> you know, Vincent Canby asks this guy, "Well, what happens in the movie?" And he just says, "That's not important." <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because that's such a common question you ask about a movie. You know, what happens and it was the plot, and to not even say, you know, oh, there isn't really much of a plot, or you know, oh, it's uh, more of an art. You know, just for the answer to say that is not important is so funny and accurate
0: towards this movie because it's just not. <laughs> Absolutely not important. Um, I like this, although Vincent Canby admits that he has not even seen the film that he's writing about. He does say that he has heard about it. It's playing at midnight at a nearby theater, and he describes it as such, quote, it displays a fascination with excrement in word and deed that carries its audience back through puberty to the cradle and faulty toilet training. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the other guy he's talking to, uh Stanley Jr. says he's done with the revolution. He's going to join the Republican Party. He's lost all faith. This is this is a turning point in someone's life. Pink flamingos. You think
1: it was the woman wearing the Nazi symbol or do you think it was the guy with the gaping asshole?
0: Uh <laughs> Uh, I think it could have been Divine fellating her son within the context of the film uh, right there on the couch. That's the
1: only thing that John Waters has gone on record saying that he regrets filming oh, it, the fellatio okay. scene. And it was because the two actors were good friends in real life. And he felt like it added an awkward tension between them and put awkward tensions on set that weren't there before. And also, the guy who played the son never acted again after this movie. Oh. So.
0: Well, that's a jumping off point. I think we should talk about this film and the people behind it. I am open to having my opinion changed. I've already said that Divine and John Waters very charismatic. I would like to know more. Hmm. Well, they grew up in the same neighborhood.
1: Okay. They both were from Baltimore, And they knew each other from a pretty young age, and they both sort of fell in love with the countercultural scene. And it was John Waters who came up with the name Divine. And when she was in drag, he would call her the most beautiful woman in the world, almost. I find it best not to question too much about John Waters. You know, part of the entertainment is the enigmatic nature of his character. You know that's him at the beginning of all the Tower late night movies, right? With the cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. (laughs) How has anyone expected to sit through a film, especially a European film without a cigarette?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So good. John Waters is funny.
1: So, yeah, they started making short films together. So they made a film, which I have not seen, Mondo Trasho together. That was their first feature. And then they made multiple maniacs, and multiple maniacs became sort of a cult hit. It had a sort of subversive following, and was also considered to be a mildly successful midnight movie in the same year that El Topo by Yodorovsky, More on that later. Very soon was also a success, and so Pink Flamingoes was a slightly higher budgeted film, uh, twelve thousand dollars total. And they wanted to make something that would be shocking and could have a full on midnight release and be something that people wanted to go see to pretty much so they could say that they've seen it. You know, what's more fun than being like, oh, yeah, I sat through Pink Flamingos. I was brave. It's about right. My most controversial opinion about this film might be just how wholesome I find it. OK. There's something warm About this movie, you can feel the legitimate friendship and camaraderie coming right off the screen. That's something that Deep Throat doesn't have. That's something that Two Girls, One Cup doesn't have. Those are legitimate pornos made by actors who are being just paid to do something. And, you know, in real life, we find out they've been abused and stuff because that's a part of the thing. This was a group of really close friends who were all just doing stuff with each other and having a good time. And I do feel like regardless of how disgusting the movie ever gets, that energy is there in the film throughout. Yeah. You never feel any sort of animosity between anybody. It's just really there's there's a tender understanding between everybody on screen. And, and Yeah, I, we
0: talked a little bit about uh, how the behind the scenes drama and a lot of other films that we've really admired uh, kind of taint our enjoyment of it. And it's not. Yeah, I guess it's nice to know that this is just a group of friends. Yeah, I mean, that was how John Waters did all of his movies. He always
1: just liked working with people who he enjoyed being around and hanging out with and smoking weed with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Divine had Baptist parents growing up and grew up in a super conservative home. And this is their rebellion. You know, I I can see that. I think that the culture they were involved in in general was the rebellion. And at this point, they were just having fun.
0: I, I I can dig it. I mean, yeah. I don't find eating dog shit fun, but I mean listen, Divine does not look happy at the very end of the film. You don't think so? She's got a big smile mm. on her face. Oh, with the dog poop in her teeth. Uh, <laughs> and the tongue. <laughs> uh. It feels like she's trying. <laughs> Putting on a brave face. Yeah, the story goes that
1: she, well, she got to the hotel after they were filming and then called a hospital and said, what would you do if a child ate dog shit? And they were like, <laughs> oh, you'll be fine. The child will be fine. You just might end up with white worms and those go away quickly. <laughs> Oh god. I just think that's a really clever way to ask it. Oh, and she used uh she used the toothbrush of a person she hated to wash her mouth afterwards. <laughs> which is also just so funny. That's
0: petty. I love it.
1: You know, I I watched a lot of John Waters' films to prepare for this episode, uh, because I'd seen Pink Flamingo's Hairspray, Cry Baby, Polyester, and Serial Mom. Those were the ones that I'd seen. And so they have this film called Female Trouble, where Divine plays a high schooler in the opening scenes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All and right. that movie is way more on the nose, hysterical. Mink Stole, who plays connie marble and pink flamingos she plays divine's 14 year old daughter in uh female trouble and there's just this hilarious scene where uh she's like mom you are so ugly and fat and she's like well you look like shit for a 14 year old And the whole movie is just super winky and funny like that. Uh, Divine does a performance on a trampoline and she does a big backflip and we literally clapped in our living room. It was so impressive to watch. Uh, Yeah, I really find a lot of joy and humor in these movies. I don't see them as just, you know, because I've sat through trash. You know, I've sat through a Serbian film. I've sat through, you know, movies that where the whole point is just to make you feel grossed out. And there's no other thing to glean from it. There's no sense of awareness. There's no sense of humor. And I gotta say, those movies are all trying to do what John Waters did. But he does have intention in these movies. And the intention might be stupid and not mean much, but it's still there. This is a movie about a family who has sort of fallen from grace and are enjoying it at the bottom and don't want anyone to disturb them while
0: they're down there. Yeah, and and they all love each other. Yeah, they all love each other. Okay. I've never seen a Serbian film. I I hate it. Yeah, I've heard just miserable things about it. And, yeah, I mean, I haven't watched Pink Flamingos or films like this because that whole intention behind a lot of shock films just doesn't... I don't need that. Did you feel like
1: you'd wasted time while you were watching this movie?
0: No. No, because there were still moments in there that I liked. And I think you have put it into good words. I mean, it is good to know that it's a group of friends making films. I mean, weirdly enough, that it reminded me of the times in high school when my friends and I would just go film random stuff, mm-hmm. right?
1: You know, in that review talking about how the film takes you all the way through childhood... All the way to, you know, your potty training days. <laughs> I know that it's sort of meant as a joke, but it really does sort of remind you of this time when you didn't have to pretend to be so mature and you could just sort of be stupid and silly and gross all the time. But these are, you know, these grown ass adults doing it, which makes it funny. It's so funny. Yeah, I like it.
0: Yeah, I'll be honest. The The chicken scene probably broke something when i was watching it Hmm. like i was fine with everything and then the chicken scene happens that's like maybe the first really truly shocking moment in the film Mm -hmm. and then it goes on for a while and then i mean they really do kill the chicken on screen and that's pretty vile but as john waters says the cast ate it afterwards they put it to use I eat chicken every day. I just I was about to say, tacos.
1: if you eat chicken that comes from any sort of, you know, factory, they're going through a lot worse things than what this chicken goes through
0: in this movie. <laughs> Sad, but true. It's always a little uh, icky watching animals get killed on screen, even when they are turned Into food. Uh my mind always goes to Tampopo, which I love that film. Mm -hmm. Five out of five. Love Tampopo. Yeah. But they do have that shocking scene where the turtle is killed uh by the chef. Yep. And every time I watch Tampopo with people, that uh, that's a scene that, you know, turns people off. But at the same time, that's how our food is prepared. If you're eating meat, that is how food is prepared. And I do think there is some value in seeing where your food comes from. So even though it's shocking and off-putting, there's, I'm sort of okay with it.
1: Just yeah. Just sort of. Yeah, I do think that, I I honestly do think that it's weird that the dog poop scene gets so much attention. Although I do think it's a funny way for the movie to end and it's gross. I feel like as far as like just basic content goes, it is not the most shocking thing that happens in the movie at all.
0: Is that like really infamous? I didn't know.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh well, well, well to you what is the most shocking moment in this film does anything phase you chicken. Okay, the the chicken. chicken okay i mean uh, to me that that's the like that is the real you know because when they eat the cops it's crazy to say that looks so fake it looks so right funny but watching someone actually kill a chicken on screen is actually horrifying all right what else should we talk about
1: Oh yeah, I wanted to pull up the trivia page for this cuz it's so fascinating. Uh so really funny stuff. I'm just going to list off some of the infamous tri- trivia about this movie. So the art de- the art department's budget was $200. <laughs> half of that went to purchasing the trailer and half of it went to decorating the trailer. And then after they ran out of money, they would just steal things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: OK, but <laughs> I mean, this is what art departments and wardrobe departments already do. They uh, take things <laughs> from stores. Uh, they buy things from stores, uh, but then they just go and return it uh, for refunds. So
1: the man with the singing asshole, as we'll describe it, is not credited. And John Waters has said that he will remain nameless because that was his choice. However, the individual has multiple times <laughs> disclose that it is them and is proud of it being this thing that they're in this movie for. <laughs> All right. Uh, John Waters has said that he was high when he wrote the film and he was not <laughs> high when he made the film. <laughs> the film was written. Hmm. John Waters would raise the money during the week, working odd jobs, working clubs. Divine would help as well. And then they would film on the weekends so that he could give people money on the weekends. I mean, you know about how Ursula from The Little Mermaid was inspired by Divine.
0: I had heard that, yeah.
1: Isn't that funny? The best Disney villain. And she looks and sounds like Divine. It's so good. <laughs> uh, the feces in the box, which is one of... That's the funniest scene to me. When they, when they get the package, they're like, How dare anyone deliver a package to us? There's no address here. And then they open the box and it's the piece of shit inside of the package (laughs) it's just poop (laughs) this is a crime against my divinity and she just goes off on that huge tangent (laughs) um but in real life that was divine's shit and she had shit into the box the night before filming and the other cast members didn't know that there was real shit in the box so it's only divine who knows that when she opens the box so the other two actors would they like smell it and you can see it on their oh, faces <laughs> <had> no idea. <laughs> i think that's so funny um i do think it's interesting mink stole who played Connie Marble? I can't remember her name for some reason. Anyways, Mink Stole. she agreed to do a stunt that was in the script where they set her hair on fire. And then the day before they were supposed to do it, she ended up backing out. I think it was just sort of realizing how low budget everything was and seeing how realistic everything was. But John Waters has since said that that was a really good call because he didn't want to actually hurt anybody. And looking back, he thinks there's no way they could have done it without giving her third degree burns and him, him ending up in jail.
0: I mean, seeing what they did to that poor trailer. Yeah.
1: The movie was shown on Turkish television, but it was only 42 minutes long. They cut out 51 <laughs> minutes of the movie. <laughs>
0: Why even show it? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah.
1: Andy Warhol told Federico Fellini that Pink Flamingos was the must see movie while Fellini was in New York.
0: Hmm. Listen, this was a film that was made for, I think you said like $12,000. And then it went on to make $7 million at the box office. That's a huge success. Yeah. It was something that everyone wanted to go see. It's playing at midnight. They tell their friends they have to go see it for the budget. It made a lot of money.
1: Yeah. Almost one of the most profitable films ever made. Not as profitable, of course, as Paranormal Activity. But I do believe it held the record there for a little while. Hmm. Paranormal Activity, similar thing, just no budget at all. And then they only showed
0: it at midnight at first. And then it became a huge success. Similar sort of marketing campaign, too, where. You show the reactions of people who were going to see.
1: Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, you're right.
0: Uh, There's a really interesting moment after the film on Andrew's uh, DVD uh, where John Waters is talking about the trailer that was cut together for the film. It uses no actual footage of the film. It is only interviews with people who had just come out of it. And that's actually a brilliant marketing campaign.
1: I love religious film. <laughs> he's my favorite. He's my favorite part of the trailer. Yeah,
0: there's funny people, uh, and they all have funny things to say. He
1: looks like he is high off of his ass, and like he's just had a transcendent moment in pink flamingos. He is. His hair is all out. It's like I love religious film, and then it's cut to somebody else. It is so funny. Oh
0: man. Um, we've been watching a lot of independent cinema. Yes, we have. I mean, this is a golden age for independent cinema, don't you think?
1: Yeah. This one, Wanda and Easy Rider are the films I'm referring to. It is interesting watching the Hollywood system sort of falter a little bit. And seeing these counterculture independent films get, you know, not just made, but also finding an audience and finding success people were really ready for something completely different people were ready for movies to
0: change um what do you attribute that to i don't
1: know i i mean you know it's hard to guess what the energy was back then what people were wanting from cinema at that time but it you know you think of the films of the 40s that we watched and a lot of people who were in there. 30s when this came out and were a part of the adults who went and saw it were you know children during that i don't know something
0: interesting about that yeah i mean the, the film's coming out now just feels so different yeah now as in 1972 radically different we're talking mainly about american independent films yes um but i would say that a whole lot of that has to do with disintegration of any sort of haze code going on um there's more of an appetite to see mature films because america hasn't had any for like 20 30 years uh i I would imagine it's something like that Mm. you you could also point i know a lot of people talk about the 70s as this time of intense cynicism and film might be holding a mirror to that part of society just a lot of people who don't trust institutions who feel like there's A darkness that settled over everything and there's nothing to be really happy about. A film like this feels appropriate as that review, quote unquote, from Vincent Canby displays.
1: Yeah. I think that's I think those are great points.
0: Yeah, and obviously with independent cinema, with a film that doesn't have a huge budget behind it, you can explore more of those ideas.
1: Yeah, and then you can become an icon in cinema doing that. You know, I mean, John Waters is a famous man. And it's just so fascinating that he started off doing these shoestring budget movies that almost feel like they weren't made for anyone outside of his friend group to watch. <laughs> and now they have Criterion editions, you know, <laughs> there's
0: yeah. something wonderful about that. We mentioned it in a couple of our other episodes, but this just also feels like a time when, you know, th- there's no studio system. There is, but there's not. Uh, right. So you have more opportunities for a single person, an individual to really have more influence over their film yeah really like embody that auteur theory and i think you even see it within the big hollywood films coming out like francis ford coppola and the godfather and steven spielberg and george lucas when they they get big but yeah for the past what is it three four years we've seen films that are like written produced directed sometimes starring one person yeah I see here in our show notes, you want to talk about what makes a cult classic. Uh, you know, I don't have much for that. Okay. Well, I guess my question was, you know, what point
1: do movies become a cult classic?
0: You know, it doesn't happen on the opening weekend. That's too quick. Right. But based on what we see here with Pink Flamingos, it could happen within a year. I mean, that Vincent Canby review is written in 73, And it kind of expects you to know what Pink Flamingos is. And it's kind of like this meta commentary on the whole experience itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what you're looking for with a cult classic film.
1: Yeah, it it has to, like, reach a specific audience and also in a specific way
0: somehow. Oh, yeah. Just the niche, the niche audience.
1: And it's not just about the people it reaches. It's about how it reaches them, you know?
0: Yeah. And they're, uh experience with it and what they say about it what they want to do with it yeah they want to perform alongside it like they do with rocky horror or throw spoons at it like they do with the room yeah there's like a ritualization that comes with some cult classics you've seen rocky horror i i must have gone like drunk or something i i, I mean that's don't how you go very well yeah, I had a great time, but I don't remember it. Yeah, uh, I know every word to that movie. I know like all the
1: dialogue and all the songs and everything.
0: I will say this about cult films. I feel like I love that they belong to an audience wholly. Like an audience just like takes them and now it belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think like one of the criteria for cult films is that they, they can't you can't uh, with any sort of intention make a cult film. Yeah. It finds its own footing. It finds its own audience naturally. And if a studio tries to force that, it never, ever, ever works. So there is something very pure uh, and delightful about the fact that audiences find these films. They're usually terrible, uh, but they love them. And that's really nice. I like that. Well, I
1: think that's honestly a perfect transition into our final thoughts for me because we're about to go into two very different from Pink Flamingo's cult classics as well which I'm so excited for we're doing I don't know kind of accidentally we're doing a little cult classic section here of these three films uh, but next week we're discussing The Holy Mountain by Jodorowsky I'm really excited about that do you have any final thoughts on Pink Flamingo's you would like to air out to our beautiful audience or beautiful listeners
0: Um, I don't like it Mm. I thought maybe I might convince you by the end of this. (laughs) There was a buck coming. There was a buck coming. But I appreciate it after talking with you. I knew there was more to it than all I saw. And I do think watching it alone was a mistake. Mm. If I were to recommend it to anyone and I'm not, which means that people will want to go see it. uh, You should watch it with people who are going to find it funny. And be drunk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, me saying do not watch it and do not watch it. It is vile and disgusting. Uh, It's just going to make you want to go watch it more.
1: I think this is a film with a beautiful heart and a gorgeous message about family and, you know, the things
0: that keep us together. (laughs) And it is. (laughs) (laughs) I might rescind that uh, that cult films are terrible. Uh, I just think of things like The Room or Plan 9 from Outer Space. But Uh, Birdemic baby Oh Birdemic of course But um There are There are plenty of examples Of cult classic Films That are great They just struggled To find that initial success Yeah The entire Godzilla series There you go
1: Yeah No definitely
0: Those are great final thoughts Yeah I knew there was more To this movie
1: Well we really appreciate everybody listening to this episode, especially us recounting the graphic depictions of the graphic things that happen in it. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode or enjoyed our show, feel free to leave us a five star review. Uh, we really appreciate that. And I actually have heard that if you leave less than five stars on certain cellular phones, it can actually make the app crash and can make the phone itself obliterate. So, Uh, just to be safe i would just go ahead and make sure it was five
0: stars i've actually heard uh some rumors going around that rating century and cinema five stars makes your phone go faster
1: oh that's what i've heard too yeah yeah yeah
0: it improves the speed yep I, i i read that there you go everyone you can find where to watch the holy mountain down in our show notes i don't think this one's streaming at the moment Yeah, I'm excited. I've heard great things. I've actually never seen an Oteroski film.
1: This is the first one to go for, and you got to go in blind. But I will say, this one also has some pretty messed up stuff in it. This is, looking at our list right now, as is, without, you know, obviously we have potential for changes. These are the two hardest sells
0: back-to-back. I'm desensitized now. I'm ready. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Seriously, a big thank you to those who are leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. Help us out in the algorithm. But also thank you to those contributing to our new Patreon. That means a lot. You're keeping the show funded. Uh, There's bonus content for you. And we appreciate that. It means a lot. Thank you. And of course, last but not least, thank you to my friend Nathan Royal for our show's music. And of course, Andrew. Thank you. Love you, man.
1: I love you too, Arthur. I'm happy we're doing this. And I'm so excited for people to listen to season two. I know they're like, already. Well, I guess at this point you guys are what? Three episodes in? Four episodes in? But I hope so. For us, we're still like recording, and uh, we haven't released them yet. And the anticipation is burning. <laughs>